Chapter 6 of The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, Part 2, The Field of Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Szelski, Towson, Maryland. The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, Part 2, The Field of Ice, by Jules Verne. Chapter 6, The Porpoise. It was the 24th of March and Palm Sunday, a bright, joyous day in many a town and village of the old world. But in this desolate region, what mournful silence prevailed. No willow branches here with their silvery blossom, not even a single withered leaf to be seen, not a blade of grass. Yet this was a glad day to the travelers, for it promised them speedy deliverance from the death that had seemed so inevitable. They hastened onward, the dogs put forth renewed energy, and Duke barked his loudest till, before long, they arrived at the ship. The porpoise was completely buried under the snow. All her masts and rigging had been destroyed in the shipwreck, and she was lying on a bed of rocks so entirely on her side that her hull was uppermost. They had to knock away fifteen feet of ice before they could even catch a glimpse of her, and it was not without great difficulty that they managed to get on board and made the welcome discovery that the provision stores had not been visited by any four-footed marauders. It was quite evident, however, that the ship was not habitable. Never mind, said Hatteras. We must build a snow house and make ourselves comfortable on land. Yes, but we need not hurry over it, said the doctor. Let us do it well while we're about it, and for a time we can make shift on board, for we must build a good, substantial house that will protect us from the bears as well as the cold. I'll undertake to be the architect, and you shall see what a first-rate job I'll make of it. I don't doubt your talents, Mr. Clawbonny, replied Johnson, but meantime let us see about taking up our abode here and making an inventory of the stores we find. There does not seem a boat visible of any description, and I fear these timbers are in too bad a condition to build a new ship out of them. I don't know that, returned Clawbonny. Time and thought do wonders, but our first business is to build a house and not a ship. One thing at a time, I propose. And quite right, too, said Hatteras, so we'll go ashore again. They returned to the sledge to communicate the result of their investigation to Bell and Altamont and about four in the afternoon the five men installed themselves as well as they could on the wreck. Bell had managed to make a tolerably level floor with planks and spars. The stiffened cushions and hammocks were placed round the stove to thaw, and were soon fit for use. Altamont, with the doctor's assistance, got on board without much trouble, and a sigh of satisfaction escaped him, as if he had felt himself once more at home, a sigh which to Johnson's ear boded no good. The rest of the day was given to repose, and they wound up with a good supper off the remains of the bear, backed by a plentiful supply of biscuit and hot tea. It was late next morning before Hatteras and his companions woke, for their minds were not burdened now with any solicitudes about the morrow, and they might sleep as long as they pleased. Poor fellows felt like colonists safely arrived at their destination, who had forgotten all the sufferings of their voyage and thought only of the new life that lay before them. "'Well, it is something at all events,' said the doctor, rousing himself and stretching his arms, for a fellow need not ask where he is going to find his next bed and breakfast. "'Let us see what there is on board before we say much,' said Johnson. "'The porpoise has been thoroughly equipped and provisioned for a long voyage, and on making an inventory of what stores remained, they found 6,150 pounds of flour, fat, 
and raisins, 2,000 pounds of salt beef and pork, 1,500 pounds of pemmican, 700 pounds of sugar, and the same of chocolate, a chest and a half of tea weighing 96 pounds, 500 pounds of rice, several barrels of preserved fruits and vegetables, a quantity of lime juice with all sorts of medicines, and 300 gallons of rum and brandy. There was also a large supply of gunpowder, ball, and shot, and coal and wood in abundance. Altogether, there was enough to last those five men for more than two years, and all fear of death from starvation or cold was at an end. Well, Hatteras, we're sure of enough to live on now, said the doctor, and there is nothing to hinder us reaching the pole. The pole, echoed Hatteras. Yes, why not? Can't we push our way overland in the summer months? We might overland, but how could we cross water? Perhaps we may be able to build a boat out of some of the ship's planks. Out of an American ship? exclaimed the captain contemptuously. Clawbonny was prudent enough to make no reply and presently changed the conversation by saying, Well, now we have seen what we have to depend upon. We must begin our house and storerooms. We have materials enough at hand. And, Bell, I hope you are going to distinguish yourself, he added. I am ready, Mr. Clawbonny, replied Bell. And as for material, there is enough for a town here with houses and streets. We don't require that. We'll content ourselves with imitating the Hudson's Bay Company. They entrench themselves in fortresses against the Indians and the wild beasts. That's all we need. A house one side and stores the other, with a wall and two bastions. I must try to make a plan. Ah, doctor, if you undertake it, said Johnson, I'm sure you'll make a good thing of it. Well, the first part of the business is to go and choose the ground. Will you come with us, Hatteras? I'll trust all that to you, doctor, replied the captain. I'm going to look along the coast. Altamont was too feeble yet to take part in any work, so he remained on the ship, while the others commenced to explore the unknown continent. On examining the coast, they found that the porpoise was in a sort of bay, bristling with dangerous rocks, and that to the west, far as the eye could reach, the sea extended, entirely frozen now, though if Belcher and Penny were to be believed, open during the summer months. Towards the north, a promontory stretched out into the sea, and about three miles away was an island of moderate size. The roadstead thus formed would have afforded safe anchorage to ships, but for the difficulty of entering it. A considerable distance inland there was a solitary mountain, about 3,000 feet high by the doctor's reckoning, and halfway up the steep rocky cliffs that arose from the shore, they noticed a circular plateau open on three sides to the bay and sheltered on the fourth by a precipitous wall, 120 feet high. This seemed to the doctor the very place for this house from its naturally fortified situation. By cutting steps in the ice, they managed to climb up and examine it more closely. They were soon convinced they could not have a better foundation and resolved to commence operations forthwith by removing the hard snow more than 10 feet deep which covered the ground as both dwelling and storehouses must have a solid foundation. This preparatory work occupied the whole of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. At last they came to hard granite, close in grain, and containing garnets and feldspar crystals, which flew out with every stroke of the pickaxe. The dimensions and plan of the snow house were then settled by the doctor. It was to be divided into three rooms, as all they needed was a bedroom, sitting room, and kitchen. The sitting room was to be in the middle, the kitchen to the left, and the bedroom to the right. For five days they toiled unremittingly. 
There was plenty of material and the walls required to be thick enough to resist summer thaws. Already, the house began to present an imposing appearance. There were four windows in front, made of splendid sheets of ice, in Eskimo fashion, through which the light came softly in as if through frosted glass. Outside, there was a long passage between two windows of the sitting room. This was the entrance hall, and it was shut in by a strong door taken from the cabin of the porpoise. The doctor was highly delighted with his performance when all was finished, for though it would have been difficult to say what style of architecture it belonged, it was strong, and that was the chief thing. The next business was to move in all the furniture of the porpoise. The beds were brought first and laid down around the large stove in the sleeping room. Then came chairs, tables, armchairs, cupboards, and benches for the sitting room, and finally the ship furnaces and cooking utensils for the kitchen. Sails spread on the ground did duty for carpets, and also served for inner doors. The walls of the house were over five feet thick, and the windows resembled portholes for cannon. Every part was as solid as possible, and what more was wanted? Yet if the doctor could have had his way, he would have made all manner of ornamental additions, in humble imitation of the ice palace built in St. Petersburg in January 1740, of which he had read an account. He amused his companions after work in the evening by describing its grandeur, the cannons in front, and statues of exquisite beauty, and the wonderful elephant that spouted water out of his trunk by day and flaming naphtha by night, all cut out of ice. He also depicted the interior with tables and toilet tables, mirrors, candelabra, tapers, beds, mattresses, pillows, curtains, timepieces, chairs, playing cards, wardrobes, completely fitted up, in fact, everything in the way of furniture that could be mentioned, and the whole entirely composed of ice. It was on Easter Sunday, the 31st of March, when the travelers installed themselves in their new abode, and after holding divine service in the sitting room, they devoted the remainder of the day to rest. Next morning they set about building the storehouses and powder magazine. This took a whole week longer, including the time spent in unloading the vessel, which was a task of considerable difficulty, as the temperature was so low that they could not work for many hours at a time. At length, on the 8th of April, provisions, fuel, and ammunition were all safe on terra firma and deposited in their respective places. A sort of kennel was constructed a little distance from the house for the Greenland dogs, which the doctor dignified by the name of Dog Palace. Duke shared his master's quarters. All that now remained to be done was to put a parapet right round the plateau by way of fortification. By the 15th, this was also completed, and the snow house might bid defiance to a whole tribe of Eskimos or any other hostile invaders, if indeed any human beings whatever were to be found on this unknown continent. For Hatteras, who had minutely examined the bay and the surrounding coast, had not been able to discover the least vestiges of the huts that are generally met with on shores frequented by Greenland tribes. The shipwrecked sailors of the porpoise and forward seemed to be the first whose feet had ever trod this lone region. End of chapter 6 Recording by Jack Zizelski, Towson, Maryland